Trekkies, and welcome to Trek Freaks, a part of the Geek Freaks podcast family. In this podcast, we review episodes of Star Trek, starting with the original series. My name is John, and I'll be one of your hosts, joined by my good friend and co-host, Kevin. Hey, guys, what's up? Uh, today, we are going to be reviewing the first episode of the original series, uh, which is actually season one, episode zero, The Cage. But before we get into that, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've uh, always been a nerd. Uh, I used to do a video game podcast back in the day. Uh, that's how I got to know you guys. and been on a couple episodes of Geek Freaks. Um, Star Trek is just one of my other nerdy passions, and I'm very excited to be able to talk about it for hopefully years. That's my goal is years. <laughs> right. By the time we're done going through every season of every series... Considering there's five about to be airing at the same time, we're going to be pretty old. <laughs> well, I, at least I don't think they're all going to be running like on the same weeks. I think it's going to be one show ends, the next begins. So at least we won't yeah. be doing too much all at once. Today we're, uh, the, we're talking about the Cage episode, which was, uh, it was not officially aired until October of 1988, but it was the first pilot that was screened for NBC back in 1965 when Roddenberry was trying to get the show picked up. Yeah, it was really interesting how this all worked out. Just to note, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but the the crew changed dramatically between this original pilot and the actual series that, that developed afterwards. Yeah, it was hardly ever heard of. If it, I don't even know if this ever happened before. NBC liked the concept of Star Trek, but they did not like the specific episode, The Cage. So they requested that Roddenberry recast and rewrite. They did keep Leonard Nimoy, which was a, mm -hmm. a great move. They had to fight to keep him, but they really loved the character of Spock. They being Roddenberry and stuff. They they really loved Spock and kept him going forward. But yeah, recast everybody after that. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And uh, we do see most of this footage used in a later episode, a two-parter episode called The Menagerie, right? Yeah, um, I don't know if that was <laughs> a way to save on budget and have still be able to use uh, footage that they owned but yeah it's it's really cool and without this episode without this pilot this failed pilot so to speak we wouldn't have the character of captain pike we wouldn't have that menagerie episode and we wouldn't have uh the upcoming star trek strange new worlds all right at that do you want to do our recap yeah warp speed recap i had warp one mr Sulu. accelerating to warp one sir uh, after the opening uh opening intro the bridge crew scanning something they don't see it turns out to be an old style distress signal from a planet called from the talos star system uh they assemble a crew of six they beam down then they find a bunch of humans and then they see this young woman named vena mm -hmm. and this whole time their interaction with the enterprise crew is being viewed by these big brain telosian people uh, they're obviously supposed to be the villains of the episode at this point. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, uh, everything disappears besides Pike and the Enterprise crew. And the, the, the Telosians take Pike into this, uh, into this cave door. Mm -hmm. Pike wakes up in a cell. Looks like to be some kind of zoo. There's, uh, there's other creatures in other cages. Hence the name of the episode. Pike is... What he thinks is at first that he's transported to Rigel Seven, something from his past. Um, it was a life or death battle with a, a creature that 
he did in real life that he he had already had that. It was in his memories. But this time, Vina was there to try to add to the, the suspense. Um, in the meantime, the crew's plan to uh, break the captain out does not work. Uh, we see that it's actually some kind of zoo that the Telosians have put together. And the entire purpose of the zoo is for them to live vicariously through the, the memories of the specimens. It's like stories for them. Uh, Pike pretty much figures out that the Telosians are trying to create an Adam and Eve situation where they have their own human species brought up with, uh, with Pike and Vina as the, the first two. That's when Pike gets angry and finds out that the Telosians can't read his mind through what is called primitive thoughts or like very, very harsh, primitive anger thoughts. Uh, Pike gets the upper hand on one of the Telosians who then destroy, uh, threatens to destroy the Enterprise if Pike doesn't release her. Pike outsmarts her. Telosians deem the humans are too dangerous to keep in a prison. They are free to go. Roll credits. I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. If I push it any harder, the whole thing will blow. All right. So that was the the brief <laughs> brief with air quotes recap of the episode. Yeah. Um, that was warp one, right? We're not we're <laughs> yes, not nine point nine today. <laughs> no, not not this time. No. Uh didn't want to get near that warp ten threshold. No, I, <laughs> so, <laughs> What did you think of the episode? What what stood out to you from the beginning that uh, that you want to make note of? Uh, well, I, I like it because I mean, obviously, this is a staple. This is a big uh, beginning to all Star Trek. Uh, but the perspective that the Telosians had of humans and how you know from the beginning it seemed like you know they just want to have slaves to fix their machines, right? Because they they got so advanced that they do everything telepathically. So it's as if we spend all of our time staring at our computers and we forgot how to do server maintenance or something like that and or over generations. Um, so they don't know how to maintain any of their equipment anymore. So at first you're thinking, okay, they just want slaves. So they're cruel, vicious people or something like that. But then at the end, when number one, I can't remember her name, but she threatens to blow all them up. And they're like, oh, you know, you guys are too violent to uh, be our servants or even in, in the, the best of situation you couldn't live in a cage then they could have killed them they could have forced them to stay in a cage anyways and get what resources or use they could out of them or something like that and they choose not to they let them free and they could because their species is going to go extinct they could reach out to Starfleet or the Federation and, tr and ask for help but the guy says no we wouldn't do that because we know this is going to affect your culture too you will eventually tried to mimic our tele telepathic abilities and you would suffer the same fate as we are. So though they seem so cruel and, and vicious to be, you know, taking control over people, it's just a matter of perspective. They don't have the same social structure we have or boundaries because of their mental abilities, but they actually do have great compassion for other, other people and societies, I guess. Uh, if we were willing to live in captivity with, you know, everything you want and be a little paradise and all you have to do is go to a job, then they would support that. But if we can't, they would rather leave our society to thrive and not be tampered with or, or ruined. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> not an interesting part. That was my whole uh, understanding of the plot. But yeah, I don't know a whole lot of other sci-fi from that time period, from the mid 60s. Mm -hmm. um, I was... When I first started watching it, I hadn't seen this episode in about probably 15 years until I just watched it last night. And I didn't remember all of the, the, the beats of it, but I could see how it was 
sort of a, a misdirect. Like at the beginning when Pike gets taken prisoner, you kind of figure, oh, it's just like you were saying, they kind of want to just take him for slaves. And mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a good misdirect. And I don't know if that was too common back in t- television or sci-fi in the mid 60s mm-hmm. um, of having a villain that isn't just a straight up, you know, evil villain, but rather trying to do something for the betterment of their species while taking into consideration the effects that it could have on humans and any other species that they capture. Like they want to do it locally to try to limit the, the impact that their experiments and the betterment that stuff that they're doing for their own betterment has on other cultures. Yeah. I, I thought that was really cool. And that really speaks to the heart of what I think Gene Roddenberry wants out of Star Trek is trying to limit misunderstandings or try to, for people to try to get to know each other better, to, for people to put general misgivings aside for a minute to try to understand and empathize with, with people and civilizations, which is the entire premise of Star Trek, I think. Yeah, exactly. It opens you up to a lot more, like a broader perspective. Like, you, you know, you have to, in any relationship, you have to try to see things from the other people's perspective to understand what they're, where they're coming from and what their intentions are. Yeah, with all that fancy good future stuff being talked about, there was one point early on, pretty early on in the episode when I think you already know what I'm going to what I'm going to say. There's the the young woman, the yeoman that uh, stumbles into Pike Mm -hmm. and after their brief interaction, Pike turns around to number one and says, I just can't get used to women on the bridge. (laughs) She's replacing your former yeoman, sir. Now, she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. No offense, Lieutenant. You're different, of course. Which, obviously, it's a relic of the 60s. I would like to think, at least. Um, And then there's this slight awkward look from number one, who just happens to be a woman on the bridge. And he just follows up with, no offense, Lieutenant, you're different, of course. Yeah. Which did not... (laughs) age well yeah so i i i agree to some extent but i also i beg to differ because i think rather than that being an insult to to gender or a negative thing i think they were just teeing it up they were bringing to light the conflict that through the series they were hoping to really delve into more but the crew changed dramatically after that so we see later with ahura that there's more gender stereotypes being broken uh, but yeah, I think that was probably a setup to be implement or to be you know worked through more later. I'd like to think that you're right. I really would, and I hope that that's what they were going for with that. Um, like you said, yeah, I, I, they had Uhura, and women weren't objects in that show as much after that first pilot. Um, it still happened quite yep. a bit, though. And I think. In the pilot, they might. This might even be one of the reasons why they didn't care for it so much. But I think just based on so much of what we see in this episode, their main topic that they're trying to confront was gender stereotypes. When we see right away in episode two, that changes to be more so about. Uh, they they also do have episodes about gender stereotypes, but more so about uh, race relations. So I think that kind of was a. A big set, like a big change they wanted to make in in redoing the pilot. That's probably true. I don't see that as being so much a 
an NBC directive as I do a Gene Roddenberry thing, though. Yeah. So you're probably right. They were probably teeing that up, but still having that episode on its own with no other context for <laughs> that conversation <laughs> that did not sit well, that didn't age well. Yeah. And and I think at the time, probably that that uh, issues about, you know, gender, women had more rights and equality and stuff at the time already. And that might have been a good point that, hey, we can focus on this, though this is the the the, the fight of the past. We should look ahead to what's even more on edge. What are people really not willing to accept yet? And let's push that envelope. I think that's why, hopefully that's why they moved more into uh, racial topics than uh, gender. Yeah, and there's a lot more of that later on too. The gender stuff is, uh, there's some of that in Voyager. There's a lot of race talk in uh, in Deep Space Nine. There's a couple of great episodes in Deep Space Nine that we'll talk about at some point down the, down the line. Um, it's a recurring theme. They're both recurring themes yeah. throughout throughout Star Trek. And yeah, this this set it up pretty well. Um, there were a lot of really cool things about this episode, though, like the music, that yeah. intro music that they kept that for the rest of the series, did they not? I think they did, yeah. weird hearing it without the the space the final frontier talk at the at the beginning i like that they added that later but yeah yeah the, the music was good all the special effects were pretty good the production in general was pretty darn good for a, a seemingly low budget sci-fi pilot yeah I, I was surprised i think i counted there was at least six different sets that they had just for this pilot episode and you think back then i mean th there's no almost no cgi they they can you know, use a highlighter to put a phaser beam or something like that. But other than that, it's, it's, it's all actual stage sets that they're having to build. And you have that large crash site. I mean, you have all of the, the sets on the Enterprise, but uh, the crash site, they have the underground like cave that they're in. They have the place where they do the picnic, the castle where they, they fight that uh, whatever, that other race. Uh, a lot of different, a lot of different places. Oh, and um, when she's a green alien and they're at some, well, I don't know, pool party or whatever it was like there's yeah multiple different sets i'm surprised to see so much investment i think in a pilot of a show which goes to show you they were really expecting this to blow up as eventually it did yeah even some of the the special effects like you're saying they could do a highlighter for the phasers or whatever but uh seeing the transporters oh my god <laughs> could you imagine watching tv in the mid 60s and seeing something like that mm -hmm. i don't know how common special effects like that were but that that whole I, that was a remastered version of the episode that i watched last night but that still must have looked pretty darn cool <laughs> yeah because i think the original version i'm pretty sure i've seen before not the remastered where somebody's flipping the light switch on and off and then they <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the lights are flashing and the people just fade away they disappear like like when the telosian turns into another creature and they're just you know an overlay that transitions uh so but the lights would stop flashing in between too so it's super noticeable but i like when they do the you know the the lighting effect the twinkling magic effect that really sells the transport technology yeah <laughs> it it took a little bit like there is it seemed like it was definitely early on in special effects and it was early in starfleet transporter technology if you want to get into canon with it but mm -hmm. that that animation took took some time for it to, <laughs> yeah. for it to happen 
I like how in this show too, first episode we start, they already have transporter technology. I haven't watched all of Star Trek Enterprise, but I remember a few episodes that I did where they mentioned, oh, hey, there's this sketchy new technology where they can just beam your particles from the planet to the ship and stuff like that. And they don't quite trust it yet. So I think that's going to be really cool someday once we get to that to uh, be able to compare the technology and everything. Yeah, I was kind of curious how that was going to happen, how that was going to wind up in uh, Discovery that takes place before the original series, but they didn't talk about it at all. They just transporters, transporters, whatever. <laughs> the uh, the practical effects were pretty good, too, in that episode, like the uh, the pulsating brains on the Telosians. Yeah, yeah, that was impressive. And I, I remember I was just listening to a podcast about a different episode of Star Trek where they had a similar effect, and they explained that they have a tube that goes, you know, up into the, the prosthetic, and on the ground, you know, not too far away, there would be a, like a set tech or a, an extra or something, you know, another person that would just sit there and have to squeeze like an airbag. And it, they'd have to try to time it right <laughs> for the scene. And then they'd like sit there and squeeze it like it's pulsing in their head. Um, so that's just kind of funny. I imagine being on set, seeing somebody like have to follow you around with a little bag. That's ingenious, though. That's uh, I think there was an episode of uh, Geek Freaks not too long ago that you guys were talking about practical effects versus special effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is just another instance where practical effects can be easier, cheaper, and look really good. It is funny, though, when you watch a, an episode that takes place not only early on in Star Trek history, but uh, a pilot that wasn't picked up because there's so much stuff that later on you can pick up on throughout the episode. Like they say that the, the Enterprise is from the other end of the galaxy from this planet that they're on, but like, well, no, according to Star Trek Voyager, they went to the Delta Quadrant and that's the other side of the galaxy. And it would have taken 75 years to get back. <laughs> By the it's, way, it, I like that voice. I think you could voice over for a Ferengi the way you do that. that <laughs> <laughs> Rule of acquisition number 34. <laughs> uh, yeah, I heard somebody else explain that, too, that in the original series, they'll go from like the rim of the galaxy back to the space station and then end up on the opposite end of the galaxy somehow within the same like year or two. And yet Voyager spending 70 years to come back from one <laughs> side, not even the rim, just from another side of the galaxy. Yeah, it's fun stuff to talk about because there are people that are dedicated enough to try to make it work in canon. But obviously, it's just the other stuff hadn't been written yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun to think about like uh, possibilities for how that could have actually worked out in in the canon we just got to take it all with the you know this is for fun not for reals (laughs) and appreciate it for what it is all right so this being the first episode i know we lose a lot of these crew members uh when it's when we get to our actual first episode being a pilot um but did you care for any of the character development they had on any of these specific characters do you wish any of these ones that we lost stayed in the story so there wasn't a whole lot of character development outside of pike in my opinion in this first episode mm-hmm. um i'm glad that pike and number one and spock are coming back to, to <laughs> a new form in star trek strange new worlds i'm going to bring that up probably a lot throughout the entirety of the original series that yeah. we talked about but um i i thought it was really interesting that the the doctor kind of played the role of a, a, a ship's counselor because that was something that was never talked about throughout the rest of the original series yes but then they have a ship's counselor on the enterprise d in the next generation and it's 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 kind of a cool dynamic that they just kind of forgot about until you know 30 years later when they were making a new 
a new series. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. And I think it's because they, they probably had a really good idea of how they wanted to to uh, develop Bones in, when they bring him in. And the the little ragtag group of Bones, Spock, and Kirk was kind of, I don't know, written to be together. But I like the fact that the Doctor back then when, you know, medicine was at a different stage or whatever, he had a very good understanding of mental health and mental health needs, especially for the Doctor or for, for his captain. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, instead of medicating him or something like that, he brings him a, a, a drink and they sit and just talk about what's bothering him. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. I kind of wish they kept that character around, but Bones is a great doctor. So it was, it was nice. They changed him as well. I did love that line that uh, the doctor said, he said something along the lines of you'll tell your bartender things you won't tell your doctor. Yeah. And that's why he, he handed him a drink. <laughs> and yeah, that was, that was a really cool way for, uh, some exposition on Pike with his uh, his not wanting to make the tough decisions and stuff is a, is a good way for them to get that out of Pike without them kind of just forcing it out there or showing like a flashback to yeah. to something because that's basically what this episode was was Pike going through his memories yeah. <laughs> inside of a cage being yeah. forced to go through his memories and that brief little conversation with the Doctor really does develop his character you know a a lot to me at least in this episode. Because it shows that, you know, he's he's torn between being a captain. He has a lot of responsibility, but the responsibility sometimes is too heavy when he loses crew members. And he said, I believe seven men were, you know, died on that planet they were on. And he's debating whether it's just time to retire or, you know, if he can tough it out. But uh, that kind of, I think that that brings out a lot of his character that he he you know, values life, obviously, I think more so than Kirk does when you start to watch the rest of the episodes uh, and how heavy it weighs on him when he loses crew members. It's it's kind of weird how different Pike is to Kirk. Yeah. And I, I think that that seems to be the, the biggest change from this pilot to the actual series going forward is they they made Pike more relatable, mm-hmm. whereas Kirk ended up being this fantastic action hero who yeah. gets the women always <laughs> succeeds in his mission no matter what and it's 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 weird going from a relatable lead character to having the relatable characters be more side people like bones or spock to some extent yeah <laughs> later on in the series and i think i think that's why they built that small team together and they were good together but yeah they they changed changed the captain to be more of like a space cowboy but then you have the kind of down to earth you know, every man that is bones. And then you have the very logical, you know, I wish I was as smart as him or as decisive as him, uh, Spock. So there's like multiple sides of who you want to be or who you think you are between the three characters. I think. I love that Spock smiled in this episode because <laughs> it was before we knew what a Vulcan was. Yeah. But the weird thing is, is later on in the original series, when they have parts of this episode in the menagerie two-parter, They've already established that Spock won't smile because he suppresses his emotions, but yet they show that clip from this episode in the, the menagerie. And I, I thought that that was really weird that they didn't try to avoid it. It's like, oh, I guess Spock did used to smile back then, but doesn't now. <laughs> right. He only <laughs> smiles for his favorite captain. <laughs> oh, shots is. fired. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was kind of, that was interesting. And I, I don't know, maybe they didn't plant too deep the the foundation of vulcans i guess 
maybe they develop that more, but uh, I, I like how, and you even mentioned that Vulcans don't express their emotions. I think early in the show, they try to say Vulcans don't have emotions, but I know for sure in Voyager that uh, Tuvok even explains that no, Vulcans have a great deal more emotion than humans do, but we train our entire lives to control our emotions and use logic instead. Yeah, I think that was something that changed between the original series and the next generation. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the, the Klingons having ridges on their foreheads is <laughs> that Vulcans can and do feel emotions a lot more strongly than than others, but suppress it instead. I like um, overall, as an episode of Star Trek, how did you feel this this ended up? How In the grand scheme of Star Trek, where, where would you put this? So I... I think it was a good idea that the NBC didn't take it and run with it because seeing this and seeing the rest of Star Trek, I don't think this portrays it the same way. I don't think it's a great example of what Star Trek is. They they did a little retooling and though I don't care for, for Kirk's uh, character as a captain as much as I like Pike, uh, I think they did a good job uh, changing it a little bit. Yeah, I... I... My thoughts are almost exactly the same as yours on that. Um, I don't care for Kirk as a character in Star Trek. Um, I know it's because I didn't start off with watching Star Trek back in the 60s. But I think if they would have run with this show with Pike being the lead, I think I would have liked the original series a lot more than I do. Yeah. Just because the differences were... We'll get into that later, but I, I, I think Pike was a... Pike was a, a very well-written character from the initial episode, and Kirk didn't really get that. He was developed throughout a series. Yeah. But that leads us to the the new series of uh, Bold New Worlds, which is going to be exciting, having a new representation of Pike. Yeah, that and uh, if you've seen Star Trek Discovery Season 2, uh, Pike is like the captain of Discovery sure. in that episode, yeah. or that season. It's, uh, man... <laughs> they they really ran with it, and they they make a lot of references in that season to this episode, this unaired episode, <laughs> originally unaired episode, I should say, of Star Trek. Uh, oh man, it's so cool! Go out and watch that now. We'll talk about it in seven years. Um, <laughs> so the the whole moral of this episode with uh, life being not worth living if you get everything you want handed to you, but you don't actually have the freedom to enjoy life yourself. How do you, what where does that rate with you? How how did that stick with you? Yeah, I I agree. It was it was um like life in captivity isn't isn't life or isn't the same. Um, but I I also think the moral was like like freedom is a a relative matter of perspective. Like, what is it to be free? And we don't really ask ourselves that much, except for when you compare the extremes of like being a slave versus you know being a regular person that has a job. But and you know are we slaves because we have to have a job or are we, you know, what, what in your life is actually controlling what you can and can't do would being in a simulation like, uh, the matrix and having everything you could want be better, even if you don't have freedom to make as many choices as you do now, how many choices do you get to make now are the things that you don't realize you can't choose. So I think it was just kind of, (laughs) opening up perspective of uh, what is freedom and who is the slave kind of thing. I think that's a a reoccurring theme, not as much throughout Star Trek, but throughout 
pop culture and especially in movies in like the the 80s and the 90s with the matrix and stuff like that is is life worth living if you can't like achieve things on your own yeah uh, the, the your identity is and self-worth are so intertwined that there's no there's no life to lead if you're just given everything you want and you can do whatever you want yeah I, it was very heavy-handed with how they expressed that moral of the story, mm-hmm. but I think it uh, it still rings true today and holds up as a great plot for Star Trek. Uh, I also think another uh, potential moral of the story was was the way the the Talosians were willing to uh, let their species die to not affect another culture or not uh, not doom another culture. I didn't realize it was kind of a mind blowing thing. I watched this episode. I think two or three times before I actually realized that aspect of it at the end that the Telosians, you know, could reach out to Federation and could ask for help, but instead they were trying to lure somebody that could help without affecting another culture. Uh, so if they were to reach out, you know, they say uh, your, your species would develop our abilities and eventually it would be doomed just like we are. Um, so that, that kind of selflessness to allow yourselves to pretty much go extinct, even though you're such an advanced species, you lost, uh, knowledge of how to do certain basic functions, I guess, um, but that it's not worth corrupting the rest of the universe, or the rest of you know other societies uh, to save yourselves. So well, that was a little a little touch of selflessness as well. Do you think that that plot point might have actually led to what is now referred to as the Prime Directive and how Starfleet operates in Star Trek? Yeah, like they took that little bit of it and made that the identity of the humans rather than the identity <laughs> of the first so-called villains they come across. Yeah, I could see that. That would make sense because, you know, it, it, one key aspect of the prime directives is you cannot expose your technology or your alienness or anything like that to uh, undeveloped civilizations, which they determine or they, uh, yeah, determine that as a species that has warp travel or not. Right. Yeah, that's a big part of it. The rest of it is um, don't interfere in the the like the the natural development of a civilization. Any any other notes? Any other uh, opinions you want to throw in there? I'm glad that obviously I'm sure most Star Trek fans are that NBC didn't just say no, we're not going to pick this up, mm-hmm. and then not ask them for a new pilot. Could you imagine if we lived in a world where this episode was not picked up and then they didn't subs- uh, subsequently ask for a new pilot and star trek never happened yeah that would be just, just that that one little decision mm-hmm. led to decades of star trek and i i can't help but wonder cuz I, I often compare obviously star trek to star wars like a lot of people do but if nbc did not pick up star trek and there was kind of a void in the sci-fi world would there be something else that eventually developed and became huge because people wanted more sci-fi and, and you know clinged onto it? Would NBC have paid to try to get Star Wars made into a series way back then, or would there be something totally different that you know became a rising star in sci-fi? I think that Doctor Who would have been bigger here in America sooner than it was. Oh yeah, okay, I could see that. But Star Trek kind of filled that void. Yeah. I like it. Star Trek, the void filler. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that's all we got for today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want to join us on our next episode, it's going to be season one, episode one, uh, The Man Trap. Yeah. Before we leave, we want to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter at GeekFreaksPod and let us know what do you think Star Trek would have panned out or how do you think Star Trek would have panned out if NBC had given this pilot the green light and they would have gone with this show. Let us know how you think that would go for better or for worse. And yeah, we'll talk about it on the next episode. All right, well, that's it for this week. Until next week, we're beaming out. See you then.